<laughs> hey guys, this is Chuma, and you're listening to The Silent Back. I know it's been a while since our last episode, but thank you for tuning in today. I'm really excited about our guest. We have a lot to get through, so I'm just going to jump straight to the interview. Uh, today we'll be spending some time with Dr. Michelle Muniqua. She is currently a combined internal medicine and pediatric resident at UPenn, and she also holds a PhD in anthropology with a specific focus in medicine and politics. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. I'm really excited to be on here, Chuma. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So since I've I've given you I've given an introduction about you that's been mostly professional, um, can you give us a non-professional one-liner about yourself? Absolutely. So um, I am a first-generation Zimbabwean American who is proud to call the city of Bloodly Love my home. Um, and my interests are uh, cooking, dancing, and live music, only some of which I can do because of COVID. That's true. That's true. So it's kind of interesting, like, uh, you know, with COVID, I feel like people have tried to emerge, you know, with superpowers, okay, after, like, we started, you know, decreasing restrictions. Do you feel like you gained any superpowers over the course of, of COVID? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I think I attempted to gain many of the same superpowers as any other millennial. I, uh, okay. I started baking sourdough bread. Why did I do that? I don't know. I, I saw something on the internet. I'm into it. I only know one sourdough recipe, and it's the first one I ever made. It's a no-need recipe, perfect okay. for busy clinicians, and I love it. And then I've gotten more into gardening this year. So I did a little garden a couple years ago, but since we had all this time, I spent a lot more time with my plants. I don't know the names of any of them, but they're I was about to say, that's the next question. Not like, okay, what are you growing and oh, no. are they still alive? But she, I have a jalapeno plant that is oh. alive and kicking, and then the rest wow. are kind of like decorative. So, But uh, I, I presume you plan to feast on that jalapeno plant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Okay. I guess that's that's totally fine. Um, so uh, I guess you know to well. Okay. One. I kind of are you are you reading, watching anything that sort of um, I guess piqued your interest or like that you're stuck on? Yeah. <laughs> um, if my any of my friends listen to this, they're going to find it really funny. But um, I have a pandemic obsession with the show alone. Have you ever heard of it? I have I have not heard of what, what I'm sure it's on a streaming service of some sort. It is. It uh, that's a good question. I think I watched it on Amazon, but um Oh, okay. Fine. So, uh so as you know, I'm an anthropologist and yes, we, we love to. yes, we love <laughs> thinking about human nature and and things like that. And a few years ago, I got into the show that I'm a little ashamed to admit that I got into called Naked and Afraid, which basically takes <laughs> one naked woman, one naked man who believe themselves to be survivalists and has them 
survive naked and afraid for three weeks in some kind of environment like like a you know tropical island or like you know chile or something like that and they have only one item that they can bring with them and it's a ridiculous show right it's like the people on there are, you know like you have to be a little weird to go on a show like that right <laughs> yes um, i would not sign up for that <laughs> no never um alone is like the more impressive amped up version of that it's like people who have these really incredible like survival skills, everything from like medicinal plants and herbs to hunting and trapping to making their own nets. And they go out by themselves alone into the Arctic and have to survive for a long time. We're talking like a hundred days and they have equipment, but they like, they have to feed themselves. They have to purify right. their own water. They have to build their own shelter and they have no help. And I don't know, I think I got into it because the pandemic was just this like, I don't know. It was. It's just been such a weird experience, and like yeah. thinking about like when it comes down to it, what do we need to know in order to survive, and like what kind of people do we need to be in order to hmm. to have the strength to do that? You know, because at the end of the day, the show's about psychological endurance more than it's about any one particular skill. So I've been really into watching that lately um, because I think it has taught me a lot about human resilience in particular. Huh. Wow. Okay. That's uh, that 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 went that went deeper than I expected it to. Um, so okay, maybe I should now ask you then. Um, I guess has anything surprised you about the pandemic itself? Like, yeah. I mean, I guess in the way it's sort of affected like our daily life or you know political life or has anything surprised you about it? Gosh, so much. Like so much has surprised me about it. It's so weird. I mean, a few years back when I was in grad school, I worked, um, I was part of this program called ELIS, which was a kind of like interdisciplinary program that sort of had this idea that like, if we brought people with dis different disciplines together to solve wicked problems, we could sort of innovate in the space of the social sciences. Um, and the natural sciences and physical sciences too. And so I worked on this team with people who are everything from engineers to designers to myself. And the project we happened to work on was epidemic preparedness. And so like, hmm. I've kind of thought about pandemics a little <laughs> bit and what they would be like and what communication right. would be like. And we spent a whole year, you know, sort of obsessing over it. And yet I think at every turn, there were things that surprised me. I mean, probably the biggest one, um, is is how fragile our ability to come together was you know there were these moments that were were where you were so like i don't know i found myself really moved by for example the ways that like philadelphia came together to help some of the poorest among us and and all of these services that sort of sprung up in the wake of the pandemic and at the same time i think the way that the pandemic has been politicized has also surprised and disappointed me in terms of, you know, our ability to come together as a nation to do what needs to be done to, to get through this. And also our ability to come together as a globe to acknowledge the steep power hierarchies between nations and how we needed to be more attentive to the fact that, you know, vaccines and treatment and all of that are less accessible in different places. So. Yeah, I, I expected us to, to behave a little better than we did, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you had high, high expectations, okay? I thought I had medium expectations, and I was wrong. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I guess were were you at all surprised? I mean, I guess there's been you know this is sort of old data, but it's something that we've I, f- I feel like it's kind of be true that like there have been disproportionate you know um, effects on marginalized peoples, black and brown individuals. Whether it's like you know um, how many of those folks are getting hospitalized, dying from COVID having access to the vaccine did any of that surprise you or i guess how how was what does that look like i guess in your hospital system and whatnot yeah none of that surprised me i mean i wanted to be pleasantly surprised by there being less disparity than i would anticipate i mean i think you know pandemics are there i mean COVID has been such a paradigm shift around the world because in a certain sense, you know, many of us, all of us are potentially vulnerable, right? And and so we have this shared vulnerability as people who have lungs and people who have bodies that are susceptible to disease. But at the same time, there has never been, I'd be hard, you'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find something that is this widespread um, and this social in nature that doesn't disproportionately affect marginalized communities in a in all these different ways, right? Both in access, access to information, access to healthcare, access to treatment and vaccination, but also just I think, you know, histories of marginalization produce, rightfully so, um, distrust and concern and conspiracies that also mean that it's much harder, as it should be, um, to convince communities that have been violated and marginalized that what we have to offer in clinical medicine is meant for them and that we're not here to experiment on populations, that we're not um, targeting marginalized populations for worse vaccine or worse treatment, right? And that didn't surprise me. I think what has been really hard is how, how difficult it has been, even as someone who shares some of the identities of my marginalized patients, to find ways to effectively bridge those gaps, to work in my health system to actually um, impact those inequalities, um, and to connect with patients about um, engaging in, in care and treatment and vaccination around COVID. Um, that that has been, I think, harder than I anticipated, although I think I should have expected that too. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you bring up some of these ideas. Um, uh, I have been, I think I, too, you know, me being, you know, Nigerian, um, African-American, working at places like Greater Memorial Hospital, um, you know, it is really difficult uh, to have some of those conversations or it just feels like you don't really move the needle. I feel like at the end of some of those conversations, especially around like the vaccine, um, you know, Dr. Manning had a really interesting like segment on this, or she's been like writing stories about like, what's your why? And like trying to have these like really, um, I think specific conversation about like the, the complexity of why people are so hesitant around vaccines, um, which I think has been really interesting. Um, you know, so I feel like we spent a lot of time talking you're an anthropologist, now turned doctor. Like one of the biggest questions I got before, I guess, in prepping for this podcast um, was really, what does an anthropologist do 
like on a daily basis like what does your life look like as an anthropologist or what did it look like i guess because now you're more in the hospital yeah well you know i will say what i say to all my students which is that um once you're an anthropologist you're always an anthropologist no matter where you go right um you know Anthropology is a wonderful discipline. I love it. And one of the reasons I love it is because it is a big tent. Anthropology is a massive discipline, um, which I love. You know, I went to what we call a four field anthropology department. And in my department, we were training archaeologists who look at human remains and often work in like the distant past. We were we were training biological anthropologists who often work um, with kind of all members of our kind of evolutionary tree from like humans and all of our ancient ancestors to non-human primates um, and who often have a really like evolutionary lens on human behavior. And um, a lot of those people actually are also interested in health and well-being and illness, which is really interesting. Um, I was in a department with linguistic anthropologists um, who are really, really focused on language in a granular way that I imagine you probably couldn't even imagine. And then people like me, <laughs> cultural anthropologists and medical anthropologists. Um, and I think, so, you know, when I answer the question, what does an anthropologist do? It's worth saying, I'm answering the question of what this particular anthropologist does, because there are as many anthropologists lives as there are anthropologists because we're such an interdisciplinary discipline. Um, I am, uh, in my anthropological life, I'm a combination of an ethnographer and a historical eth anthropologist. Um, ethnography is, um, we often call it deep hanging out. Our primary method is participant observation. Um, back in the day, <laughs> um, during a more colonial period, people would just essentially move to a place, move in and hang out with people, do what they did, try to understand why they did what they did, usually with a particular research question, and then write everything down about it in order to understand all the different ways that people are in the world. Um, and we kind of still do that to this day. You know, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for grad school, but I became really interested in migration and also in how organizations that do service work with particular populations, especially diverse populations, like actually do that work. And so that's what I did. I spent several years working across a lot of different organizations in the city of Philadelphia that work with immigrants. I worked at a refugee clinic. I did a lot of work, um, political work, service work in immigrant communities and like furiously took notes during that time. Um, I mentioned that I'm also like historically inclined because um, in the course of my work, I just got really interested in like, why is this this way? Was it always this way? Like, did we always do it like this? Is this what the city was always like? And so I found myself like in the archives, like reading old newspapers and like trying to understand like how these things about Philadelphia and its culture and its culture of service and the way that it incorporates immigrants like may have changed over time. I read a lot of books. Right. I write a lot. Um, so the life, you know, my life was really diverse. I could be doing anything from like being embedded in the organizations I was interested in to like being holed up in my apartment, like reading old tomes, like trying to like make sense of it all. Um, right. And now, yeah. I just have a question. So um, um, this, this, this question this is coming from Twitter. Okay. So I, I'm, this is comes from uh, Dr. Sayed Hoda. So he was wanted to know what are the differences between sociology and anthropology and how do they rate 
how do they interact or relate to psychology, if at all? Kind of yeah. a loaded, yeah, big question. That is a loaded question. Um, it's interesting. Um, because I think the lines between disciplines get murkier and murkier with each passing year, right? There are historical differences between the different disciplines that I think hold up a little bit. Um, although I will say that like now, those disciplines basically are just defined by like who their forefathers are, right? We're all interested in the same object, right? Which is the human and human beings and trying to understand human beings. And you can find people in anthropology, sociology, and psychology who are all interested in similar questions, but our methods tend to be different. Historically, it was the case in the US at least that sociologists tended to study the US and anthropologists tended to go abroad. Over time, that has shifted. You can find sociologists who go abroad and anthropologists who stay in the US. But I do think that, you know, our working concept in anthropology for a long time was like culture and cultural difference and trying to understand diversity, trying to understand the difference between nature and nurture, um, really trying to understand also the distinction between um, structure and agency. How much of what people do is de predetermined by this community that they're a part of and the norms that they're inculcated with and to what extent do they get to act freely outside of that? And sociologists are interested in much the same questions. Um, I think, at the end of the day, the difference between sociology and anthropology is mostly cultural, which is to say some, you hang out with sociologists and anthropologists and like you feel which set are your people, but like they're much to the, to the, like, to the outward eye, they are much similar disciplines, if that makes sense. How they're different from psychology, I think, is that psychology has a strong experimental wing, which is not part of anthropology. Um, anthropologists don't tend to do controlled experiments of human behavior. Um, but again, there are obviously lots of different kinds of psychologists. Um, and I think the other thing would be like, psychologists, I think, early, early on, were more interested in questions less of nature and nurture, although they were interested in that, but also things like deviance and normalcy, which are not necessarily concepts we talk about as frequently in anthropology. Yeah, it's interesting. So you you mentioned this this idea, I guess, of like uh, being amongst people and and uh, sort of gravitating to like who are your people. I almost yeah. feel like that's like very analogous to like medicine. Yes, and people always ask like, oh, how how did you pick your specialty? And it's like, well, I just hung out with these guys. Like I'm an, I'm a gastro. I'm a prac going to be a gastroenterologist. I'm a GI fellow now. But I'm like, I just ended up really like liking you know hanging out with like you know, the GI fellows and hanging out with the, the GI attendings in the endoscopy suite. Is, is that how you kind of fell into the I, like internal medicine pediatrics uh, yes. bit? Or I, <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I did. Um, yeah. I mean, I, so for years and years, well, I came into med school thinking that I was going to be an OBGYN, which I think is interesting. And I, I also think is fairly common among black women coming into medicine for, I think, a variety of reasons, right? Um, and I just, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just like not a surgical kind of person, you know, like there are people who like step into the OR for the first time and they're like, yeah, this is it, you know? And I was like, I'm cold. I want to eat. 
I wish the patient was awake. <laughs> you know? um, and so after I decided not to do OB, I realized that like part of what I wanted is that like I was really interested in generalist specialties. Like I wasn't sure if I was going to end up subspecializing, but I like I wanted to like feel ready to take care of a lot of different kinds of things. And so I really liked my emergency medicine clerkship. Um, I thought I wanted to be an ER doc. And I just like realized like I'm a little bit too much of a like thinky thinky person for that mm, vibe. Yeah, and like yeah, my, you, you know, I would quick. come in and I'd, yeah, I'd present my research. It, clinically, it was fine, but I'd like present my research to them and they would be like, but what's the intervention? And I'd be like, don't you think that's just like interesting? And they're like, no, we do not. Right. <laughs> we, yeah. How we, can we get this person out of the ER now? Um, we don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. my best, best, best friend from medical school, one of my like close, probably my closest friends of all time is an ER attending and uh, she's incredible and I love those docs and I realized I was not meant to be one of them. And so over time I sort of like meandered into internal medicine and then ended up doing some work with uh, asylum seekers at the US-Mexico border um, in this camp and um, I, it was a very transformative experience. And one of the things that I learned from that experience was that I wanted to take care of kids. Um, and I hadn't expected that I did my, you know, I did my medicine and surgery and EM clerkships before my PhD, but I'd like never really done any peds until like pretty deep into my so specialization. It was only then that I was like, oh, like, I really want to, I think I want to take care of kids too. Straight pediatricians, as it turns out, were not quite my people, but MedPeds people are my people. Like, you know, even in my program, I feel very similar to the other people who chose MedPeds in this weird way that I wouldn't have expected, but feels true. Now, why, I guess I'm curious, why did you initially, I guess you had mentioned this whole, you wanted to do OB-GYN. What were, I guess, what gravitated you, I guess, in a theoretical sort of way to OB-GYN, you know, and then... Yeah, like why? Why did you think you would be good there? Yeah. Um, I was a really, really hardcore reproductive rights advocate when I was uh, an undergrad. Um, I led our campus uh, sort of like Planned Parenthood affiliate for like many years. I did a lot of feminist activism. I'm sort of like in my heart of hearts, I'm like sort of an activist oriented person. Like yeah. most of my friends from college went and became like labor organizers and stuff like that. And I was like the weird one who went to med school. And so I just was really, and actually I remain really, really, really passionate about um, about reproduction and sexual health and relationships and intimacy in medicine. Um, and like, I'm still interested in like family planning and things like that in like primary care clinic. But I just, um, so, you know, because OBGYN is sort of the specialty most associated with that and they have the widest range of practice in, in female reproductive health or reproductive health for people who have uteruses, I should say more. But yeah, I just, at the end, I, it, it wasn't quite for me, but that's, yeah. But that's like what brought me there. It's probably what brought me to med school, in fact. Like I, I came to med school thinking that I would be an OB and I would move back to the kind of community like where I went to college, like, or where I like spent part of my childhood, like kind of like the South where certain services are just harder to come by. Um, and not just abortion services, but like even contraceptive services of various kinds can be harder to get. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you're from the South originally. I'm from a lot of places. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'm, okay. I'm not really from anywhere. I mean, at this point, I've lived in Philadelphia longer than I have lived anywhere else in my lifetime. I've lived right. like up and down the East Coast, but I spent six years of my life in Tennessee, and then I went to college in Virginia. And so um, I do feel connected to the South in a way. Yeah, yeah. I'm more from I'm more from the the Maryland area. Um so I I'm I'm more connect with I didn't really have a good conception of the difference between, you know, what the South was until living here for a little bit, but um it's definitely different than than the Northeast. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um <laughs> so uh I want to get to this notion I guess of of uh, you know, position advocacy and uh, I guess what that means just because i guess you know i don't know being a resident or when i was a resident in training they were always used to say you know advocate for the patient advocate for the patient um so i guess what does what does advocacy what does that mean to you or i guess what does that look like and like now for you as a uh, a resident was it for me specifically oh goodness yeah <laughs> i mean i've been a resident for um seven weeks um, so it's fresh. It's new. Um, is it and, what you expected? Maybe how about that? Like, uh, I guess yeah. theoretically, what is it? And then how is it? Yeah. For you as a, as a resident. Yeah. So, I mean, I think theoretically, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have my own thoughts about what makes life meaningful. Right. And I think that like so much of what fuels, unhappiness and burnout in this career of ours is like finding yourself doing work that doesn't necessarily feel meaningful, isn't quite what you expected, where you don't necessarily like get to kind of actualize your full self in your professional role. Um, at least that's what I've seen in a lot of my friends. Because I'm MD-PhD, it's like everyone I went to med school with is like out and through the process and I got to watch them do it. And I, and, and so for me, I mean, I think advocacy, um, in like the broadest umbrella sense is like having an ethical and, and moral orientation to the world and to your action and to like how you relate to the world, right? Like being able to look at yourself every single night when you get home um, or in the morning, depending on if you were on call, right? And feeling like, okay, like I did, I did what I meant to do. I did what feels right to me. I have a sense of what feels right to me and what feels like being a good person. And that's a really, really broad and expansive definition because I do think it is that expansive. So for me, in residency, it's been interesting because I feel much more empowered in certain ways to do right by the patient than I did as a med student. As a med student, I had more time, but I had less power Right. And I mean, not that you have a ton of power as an intern, but the fact that people, <laughs> the fact that people carry out your orders sometimes is incredible to me still. Right. I'm like, wow, I asked for that thing and then it happened. This is incredible. Right. Um, you know, I think so. Um, maybe like an illustrative example might help. Um, so um, you'll like this because you do GI. Um, right. So. A few weeks back, um, at Penn, we have a like a, a liver service, right? Um, it's like an you know an inpatient service, and we just see liver patients. And so, as interns, we rotate on it, and a lot of those patients are being evaluated for transplant. Um, and we had a patient who was being evaluated for transplant who had essentially there were like social work concerns about why he would be a good candidate. He those was are, otherwise. I will say that those are 
we can we can we have to talk more about transplant and the whole uh, yeah. machine around it. But um, more so than not, uh, the problems that prevent people from getting transplants are more social. I find than you yes. know, like yeah, medical. But go on. Yes, I totally agree. A hundred percent. We were willing to consider. Re- I mean, from a medical standpoint, we were willing to consider people were like, you know, and I, I think that's good, right, in many ways. But we're, it surprised me. Like, as a person who didn't know anything <laughs> about the field, I was like, wow, I'm amazed that this person is a transplant candidate, right? Um, socially, was much more stringent in these interesting ways in which, in which, like, as a person who's interested in, like, structural inequality and racism, I was like, I had some trepidation about. And we had one case of a person who was medically like perfect. They were very young. They had no real other comorbidities. They had a like a non-behaviorally associated reason for requiring transplant. Um, but there were social work concerns because they had a history of um, so-called non-adherence and not presenting to clinic. And you know, after speaking with the patient, you know, they they had a hard history of. Um, a few murders in their family, um, a couple of people who'd had cancer, just a lot of like, you know, a, a period of homelessness that had since been resolved, but like could partially account for this period of time in which they were irregularly connected to care. And I think I, um, you know, we went in there as a team one day and sort of laid these concerns out. And the way that it came out, I think, was just very jarring to this patient, really, really jarring. And felt bad and this person you know has children and like has a lot to live for um and so what ended up happening is that later i got called into the room because i was the covering provider and you know the patient's family sort of expressed this concern that they were being written off because they were poor and that they'd had some irregularities and that we were willing to believe the words of people who barely knew them over their own testimony to the story of their lives and what they'd been through and like their commitment now, et cetera, and that we'd made them feel worthless. And and I think like advocacy in that particular respect looked like acknowledging that there's something about the machine of the hospital that does make us like dismissive of people's experiences and like owning that that was a thing that happened. I felt it even when we were in the room. and. And also being able to go back to the team and say, like, look, it can't it can't be disqualifying to have ever gone through periods of hardship. Otherwise, we'll never transplant anyone who was previously poor, right? Um, and no, like, I think when people think about advocacy, they think it has to be on the level of like, we're gonna go and we're gonna change national transplant policy. And like, honestly, that's not my calling. I'm like probably never gonna work in this field. I'm an intern, I'm on the service for two weeks. You know, what it looks like is not just making patients feel heard, but being like, you know what? Like I do think going, being willing to go back to the team and say like, I think we need to think really hard about how we're framing this person, like what kinds of biases we're using. Like this is the way that we made them feel. And like, even if at the end of the day, we weren't going to give them a transplant that it's important to people's like human dignity, that we treat them with respect through that process and listen to them and make them feel heard. Um, and that's honestly super hard to do. Like we just don't have that much time. But honestly, the thing that was wild about it was that it didn't actually take that much time for me to have that conversation with this patient and their family. It didn't take that much time at all. It was just about like not being in that mode of like, we're on rounds, I would like to eat lunch, 
we have 15 more patients to see, right, et cetera. And instead being like, I'm here and this will take as long as it takes and we'll do what we need to do in order to do the, the care necessary. Um, and that's like more or less all I can manage as an intern. Like maybe in the future, there'll be like more things and I'll be like storming down the halls of the transplant department being like, we can't do this. But like right now I'm like, I'm gonna have two conversations and this person got a transplant and that feels like a success, you know? Right, right. I mean, I guess they're, they're really, um, man, there's so many fascinating things in there that I, I kind of want to unpack. Um, and I, I think it's going to, I just don't even know where to start. So, um, so the interesting thing is, is that uh, I will say that, you know, you were probably going to have to pump the whole brakes on, you know, storming down the hallway because there are these people who are called surgeons. <clears throat> and I have noticed that, um, you know, a lot of times, how about this? There is a, a particular power dynamic in that transplant. Have you been in the the, 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 um, the room? It's like in Hamilton, you know, the room where it happens, like the room where you get like, you know, the social worker, the GI team, the transplant team all together. And they look at a list of these patients and they're like, who are we going to list for a transplant? Um, there, are, there are deep hierarchical structures in there that um that i think are also emblematic in medicine i don't i don't know have you seen those i mean you kind of alluded to like two different things like this the 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 interpersonal and the systemic sort of like structures that sometimes prevent people who are marginalized you know from getting transplants but like i don't know can you can you speak to that at all or like yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I think the hierarchies in medicine are so interesting to me, right? Because like, you know, what cash rolls everything around me, right? Like, you know, at the end of the day, like the surgeons are making the money, right? And like, and the people who generate large amounts of revenue hold so much power in hospital hierarchies, right? And like, honestly, in many ways are like allowed to get away with so much by virtue of that, right? Um, which is a whole different conversation in and of itself that could take several hours. But, you know, I think, um, yeah, I mean, so I'm in the middle of writing this essay. Um, it's like only kind of going so well, but it's a, it's about sort of the future of anti-racism in medicine, right? And I think, I think that we often focus on the interpersonal aspects of the dynamics because they're what we see so much, because they're what makes clinical settings so tense. Um, and because they're sort of like, I don't want to call them low hanging fruit because that makes it seem like they're easier to solve than they are. Like actually like solving the problem of interpersonal racism is like a whole issue, right? Like, and it's going to take a lot, but I mean, is oppression better if you're being oppressed by people who are nice to you while they do it? Like, I don't know, right? And so like the structures to me are the biggest issue, right? Like, honestly, if people got their needs met, it probably wouldn't matter as much if you were nice or sweet when you did it, right? It's, it's the dual problem of not getting your needs met, of knowing you're getting inferior care, of not having access to care, and then also not even having the right to like, feeling like you're treated with respect while you're in the space combined that produces the problem. And so I say that just to say, like, I think your your structural point is important because like at, at the end of the day, we 
won't improve outcomes unless we're willing to dissect every single structure that is part of how people get care in an increasingly protocolized medicine where there are more and more protocols that are meant to like be objective but have built into them things that are not equally distributed in the population um, and that make it so that we actually like entrench systems of of bias rather than alleviate them um, and I think that is a more pressing and alarming issue to me than like implicit bias. Implicit bias and all that stuff is what makes it seem acceptable to, to people that they work in such an unjust system, but it's not the generator of poor outcomes alone, you know? So there's more, what do you, there's more to implicit, well, actually, so you, you wrote this piece, um, uh, I think it's entitled Vigilance as Coping and vigilance as injury um, oh yeah it starts with this it starts with one of my favorite authors um france Fanon, and the quote is i'm just gonna read the quote and maybe we can talk a little bit about implicit bias and like um and vigilance because maybe i'm just saying a word that everyone's like what does that mean um, so the it starts with uh if i were asked for a definition of myself i would say that i am one who waits I investigate my surroundings. I interpret everything in terms of what I discover. I become sensitive. So I guess tell me a little bit about maybe how medical schools try to incorporate, I guess, learning about implicit bias, cultural competism. Like, like yeah, how, how did they tell me more about that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, increasingly, they're hiring people like me, which is an interesting thing that we can definitely discuss. Yeah, I mean, something that I, I, gosh, where do I even start? Um, we'll start with the medical education thing. But I do have a lot of thoughts about just like, what does awareness of bias and systemic racism and discrimination like offer a person in terms of tools to navigate the world and are they always helpful that's one thing let's pause but yeah i mean so i have been doing med ed stuff for a while um it started when i was myself kind of a med student and i was sort of part of this group of people um that i came in sort of towards the end of this process of revamping pen medicines um doctoring curriculum it's that sort of classic first semester med school course where you're like introduced to the softer aspects of being a physician and it's like part of our sort of like professionalization and when i myself was a first year med student many moons ago now in like 2011 which may be close to when you were a first year med student perhaps it's around there, it's around there. <laughs> yeah. um so you know like our curriculum was like i mean it was just frankly racist right it was like it was like okay you have to know some stuff about people. Um, so what you should know is that like black people love sugary drinks and fried chicken and they all go to church on Sundays and Hispanics like respect authority, et cetera. And like that kind of framing, right? And then they would just like have these like case studies that were designed to sort of like, just like all your clinical case studies, like entrench a heuristic, it would be like, okay, like I'm trained black elderly, church, diabetes or something, right? Like it was very unfortunate. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable with it. In fact, that course, that version of that course is the reason I'm an anthropologist that because I came to med school thinking I was just gonna do an MD 
And I spent a semester in that course and I'd been a double major with anthropology as an undergrad. And I was like, oh, I don't need to do a PhD. Like they're gonna have a curriculum about social stuff and it'll be like totally enough for me. And I got through like four sessions of that class and like fled to the anthro department and started taking seminars and got a PhD. Like that's like literally how it happened. <laughs> um, so when we decided to revamp the curriculum, you know, a lot of the changes that we started implementing were, were to try to, to, one, move away from stereotypes, move towards a more structural understanding, one that was like more attuned to history, power, economics, and thinking about how those things shape human behavior, um, try to come up with a practice of humility. And then also I think like, it was this really hard thing where we were trying to create an academic space in medical school where we like carved out space for introspection. We really wanted people to be reflecting upon this process of like who they were before and how that impacts the way that they look at the world and how that might like come into contact with patients who are like wildly different from them and like how are they going to respond to that and like we did all of this work to try to do that and like it was so hard. It is very very hard. And it's hard for a lot of structural reasons about the way that medical school is, the pressure that people are on to do well on step one and like get into specialties. And it, it just was a really hard environment to do that. But what has been interesting is that in the years since then, I've been involved in and like spoken with people from medical schools all around the country that are trying to rethink this aspect of medical education, you know, as, as we get an increasingly diverse population, as like, you know, as we recognize that like, people in medicine are not reflective of the populations they care for. So we need to do something about that on multiple scales. So I don't know, it, it's, um, meta is changing a lot, um, often for the better, sometimes not as much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I guess I'm curious. So I mentioned the, this term vigilance. Um, can you explain to people, I guess, what, what, what that is or what that means? Yeah, I um, so I wrote this essay about vigilance because I was thinking a lot about implicit bias um, and implicit bias training workshops. I just I happened to have just gone to one and felt like it was really, um, a, <laughs> just it was a really like complex experience, right? And like the reason I wrote the essay is because I wasn't, I was really feeling conflicted about the idea that we put people in these mixed race workshops to talk about implicit bias. And if you're a minority, like if you are like me and you are a black woman and you're in a room full of white people, you have these like sharing time where like everyone in the room ex explains that they're biased against people that look like you. And they have this like cathartic moment where they all like express that. And maybe there'll be one or two people who don't express that. And then they're all like, okay, cool. So we all feel this way. And then you're like, wait a minute, what? Like I was school with you, right? And like, of course you know, but that sense of like, of like being aware that that is out there um, was something that I was experiencing a lot of and being like, I don't know that this is really helpful. And at that time I came across some studies that were trying to quantify vigilance as this kind of like awareness of racial discrimination, like not just the act of being discriminated against, but like anticipating that there was discrimination out there and correlating it to adverse outcomes, um, out, adverse health outcomes for African-Americans and presumably other marginalized populations. And I think the idea there is that that activation activates your HPA axis, you know, causes there to be impacts of stress. And that like that knowledge, that awareness 
that anticipation, like they did a, a bunch, you know, there's a bunch of instruments for it that basically try to, to get a sense of like, when a person leaves the house, are they expecting to have an, a, a racist incident happen to them? And that sense that knowing that that was something that was being linked to poor health outcomes, but that that was also something that was sort of happening to me in this educational experience where I was like being made to feel sensitive about who I was around um, was really interesting and impactful. And I will say, you didn't necessarily ask about this, but it's something that I, has been on my mind since we're talking about the difference of the South, right? I don't think I worried about my family and I worried as much about racism in the South as we did when we moved into the Northeast. And I think the reason for that is because, especially at the time, the racism, racism in the South was just like so different, you know? It wasn't, it, it just, it was either inconsequential insofar as people were still like warm and pleasant and kind to you, even if they held racist beliefs, or it was overt because people didn't feel ashamed about their racism in certain ways. Um, and that moving to the Northeast and f feeling this sort of like insidious, sometimes like prickly unease that people would have around me, like, the, you know, when I first moved here, the first few years I was here, I was like, is that person mean? Is there something wrong with me? Or do they, or is there some bias thing happening here? And that like questioning, I think is like a big part of my experience as a person of color um, in this space for quite some time. Yeah, it's yeah. that sort of incessant like paranoia. Yes, yeah, which isn't good for you, right? I mean, I, I don't feel that way as much anymore, but I think it's also because there are certain things I've just decided not to care about. It's not that they think that the bias is gone. It's that I've just like, essentially attempted to push it out of the, the realm of things that my conscious mind spends time thinking about, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it will come up at certain points that I'll have an interaction with a, a person in the hospital and I'll be like, would that person have spoken to me that way if I was a white doctor? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure, you know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so I guess like, you know, reading a lot of your, 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 you know, articles and whatnot, I feel like there are a couple words that I feel like we just need to, to take a deeper dive into because I don't hear them a lot in medicine. Um, and because then I think that they're wildly important. Um, so a couple of them, uh, I'll just name a few. So you, you talk a lot about shame, um, guilt, vulnerability, and certainty. Those are just words that really stuck out to me. Um, I, can we talk a little bit about the problem or I guess the issue with certainty in medicine or like how it crops up and like the good and bad of certainty, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Certainty. That's an interesting one. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, so I, so this is, there's like a lot of things I think about this, right? Like the first is that I think that was a really interesting time to be a doctor. Um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Because we have so many people and disciplines and informational sources, et cetera, competing with us for authority over the body, right? Like to, to take it like real, real old school anthropology, right? Like, you know, like most societies have had a class of healers, right? And you know, when, when medical anthropology was coming up as a discipline, like um, physicians, 
you know, of our kind had done a lot of work to like consolidate themselves as the healers of our society. And like early medical anthropology spent a lot of time like critiquing that, critiquing the ways that like, it was very like top down authoritative, like we were not having dial, we were not having shared decision-making with our patients, you know, 50 years ago, it was a different thing. And that was bad, right? I think having more like interactive communication about one's body, I think has been positive, but I think as that's happened, as we've like, and as capitalism has sort of like made everybody into a consumer in every space that they're in, like, I think medicine has changed a lot. And now we're competing with the voices of people who are in other healing professions who practice alternative medicine, people who are like, you know, not healers of any kind, but speak a lot about it on the internet. Like, I think, you know, there's a lot of that. And I think part of that is, that's interesting is that as a result, I think medicine has often like come down on the side of being like, we're the ones who have certainty, like our stuff is true. We love evidence. We do evidence-based medicine, which like, anyway, whatever. The point is like, that's a whole thing that we do. Like but that, that's, I mean, that's our, that's really that's important. our certainty thing. Yes, yeah. That is really important. You know, it's like um, the, it's funny. Somebody was asking me the other day, like, what's the difference between, forgot what the, it was like what's the difference between like i don't know like you know a, a physician versus like somebody in like homeopathic medicine or something like that like and i feel like the the thing that always i always come back to is just that like we have data you know and like that is the guiding that is the the thing that guides our you know it's like the guiding like like i don't know thing that moves us that we all that all doctors and physicians at least most of them um that's the core of who we are um but i think we don't it's rare that we let people into like the sausage making of data that we you know rely so heavily on yeah um, yeah i completely agree with you and on it you know there's a lot of anthropologists there's a there's a sort of discipline that's related to anthropology called science and technology studies. And then there's a lot of anthropologists of science and data collection and studies themselves. And like, what's so interesting is that like, we're really attached to this idea of, of data because it gives us certainty and it like makes us the ones who have the truth. And like, don't get me wrong. I believe in, I believe in data. At the same time, all data, every paper, every study is messier than its manuscript would reveal, right? Like, it's not like the data like comes from the sky. <laughs> it's like ordained by a higher power. Like it's produced by humans through like messy complex processes that are like, that are that in the in and of themselves uncertain, right? Like people, and I and I think that's actually okay. But what I what I think actually is challenging is so on a, on a sort of meta standpoint, I think like we're in an, in this place where we're like really 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 leaning on the on the the techniques and tools of evidence-based medicine, both like actually in research, but then like rhetorically as we like defend ourselves from incursion. But then as individuals, it's also this thing that we go back to, right? Like, I think it's like a defensive posture that we have when like faced with patients. And I think it's especially hard for trainees because we're often asked to project certainty before we have it, before we feel it in our bones, right? that we're being asked to to like play dress up as like you know like 
authority figures. And that's like part of our socialization as doctors that we like learn to do that, that we learn to project certainty, right? Um, that we learn to like, like make a plan on rounds, even if it's wrong, because we're being graded on confidence, right? And, <laughs> and like, so true. <laughs> and like I, I think that's, that's fine, but I also that's just like not what my personality is like. And I and I think also I just they don't would know say that it that, helps people. But they would say maybe you just have maybe you still just have imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Of course I have imposter syndrome. Look at me. Look at where I am. Of course I do. But I also think I I think that like people being insecure and needing to project an encyclopedic knowledge of everything is responsible for a lot of cultural problems in medicine. A lot of cultural problems in medicine that when we refuse say, to make, When you say yeah, cultural, cultural problems, problems, yeah, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean like a lot of the like snippy interactions between consultants, et cetera, right? Like that when people don't know something and they feel threatened in their knowledge or like you call and you ask a question and they like, and they don't feel prepared to answer. They're just rude instead of saying like, I don't know the answer to that or actually never considered that alternate plan. Instead, they're like, why are you asking me this? You should know better. What are you an intern? Like, it's like, okay. Or you've been a fellow for six weeks and they told you this plan and you don't know any alternatives to it. And that's actually fine. Like, that's okay. You can hang up and call back, you know, like, like, or the but then, fact that But like, then they would look weak. You see that? Right. And, and being yeah. the fellow, I'm the big bad fellow. I need to look better than absolutely at all you times. You need to be certain. You need to yes, be certain. exactly. Or the attendings where I'm like, so much of it is like, this is attending preference. It's actually okay to be like, this is my own idiosyncratic habit I picked up as a jar and it never changed. And this is why I do it this way. And maybe the other attending does it differently, but that's fine. Instead of being like, I mean, it would be irresponsible to do it that other way. And I'm like, would it be? Is that true? Do you know that for sure? Like, I, I just, it, it, and so much of that is like why, you know, I think the issue with EBM is that honestly, evidence-based medicine is the back, is like the backdrop of relatively few practices in day-to-day -day medicine, right? There are some areas that are like chock full of evidence where everyone can name the trial and its outcome and like the acronyms, et cetera, for it. But like, there's a lot of aspects of it that are just like reps that are like, learn the old school way of apprenticeship that are like, I've done this to a hundred patients and this is how it happened. And, and I think I think being more honest about that would be really helpful. Now, um, yeah, why? Why? Yes. Um, why I, should we be comfortable with uncertainty? We should be uncomfortable with uncertainty because it's honest, it's truthful. Um, people can tell when you're being deceptive with them. So I think our patients can tell when we're not telling them the truth. And the other thing too is also that they go home and they Google what we said. And so if we say something where we're like, this is it, this is the word. And then they go home and they find something else. Like it, it causes us to be not credible, but also people are cagey when they're being dishonest. Like very few people can like say something that in their hearts, they don't feel certain in and like do that in a way that's like normal, approachable, relational, like, and I think at the end of the day, like this whole job, I mean, I'm going to sound, you know, the, the sort of like punchline of the course we ran is, is that like being a physician is about managing relationships, right? It's about managing relationships with your peers. You know, it's about managing relationships with the society and your patients and like the best doctors, like the very, very best doctors in 
disciplines where we don't cut people open, but even in disciplines where we cut people open, are the ones who are capable of, of effectively managing relationships with all of those people. Um, it doesn't really matter how smart you are. If every single nurse hates you, your trainees are miserable and your patients think you're a jerk. Like, you know, like they might have a good outcome, but there's probably a better way to be a doctor than that. Yeah. Yeah. It is funny. Like uh, we have, uh, I work in an IBD clinic um, at a, I'll say undisclosed site. And um, there's one attending there who uh, she essentially manages this whole huge panel of IBD patients. And I, I mean, I don't know, her vaccination rate is incredibly high. Like every single one of her patients is vaccinated. Um, and I'm like, how is this possible? Uh, and then you go to her clinic and you meet her patients and, you know, they, they do what she says because they trust her. And they're like, I came with really bad Crohn's disease. She told me I was going to get better with these meds. I did get better. So now whatever she, whatever she tells me to do, if she says it's going to make me better, I do it because like, I trust this woman. I'm like, all right, (laughs) that's fair. Um, Tell me, so we talked about certainty. Can we, can we jump to, um, can we jump to vulnerability? I guess if we're talking about trust, I mean, is, can we have trust in relationships with our patients without vulnerability? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's bounded, right? I think in any, any like professional setting, there are things about yourself you have to hold back, especially when you're in a role of like mentor or a caregiver or a physician, right? So like certainly vulnerability doesn't mean, uh, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to tell my patient I'm going through a divorce and I'm having a hard time and they're going to like turn into my therapist for a session, right? Like, I think it's still about having boundaries, but it is about saying like, I don't know, or like, you know, like, this isn't clear to me. Or like, if there's a conflict, resolving it the way you would resolve a conflict anywhere else, which is to like, be willing to say like, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. That's not like what I meant to do, but it's still bad. Like, and I don't like it. And I'm sorry that I did that. And I had my reasons, but they they don't matter, right? And, you know, I think like we can do that. Um, but I think it's really hard to do that. You were going to ask me about shame and guilt, so I may as well mention them. <laughs> like, um, I had a very, very hard time when I first came to med school. Um, I just, I just found everything about it terrible and difficult. <laughs> Like, like, like most <laughs> medical students. Yeah, like top to bottom. I was just like, this is awful. But part of it was that I was like, <laughs> I, was, I, it wasn't even that it was hard work, but that I was like so unprepared for like how it would impact me psychologically. And then, um, and there's, I think there's a lot of like biographical reasons for that. Just like the kind of, you know, like when I got to med school, like I was not a confident person. I did not like public speaking and a lot of like social anxiety I had tons of imposter syndrome because like everybody else in my med school class went to like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. And I was like, I came from this like small cow town and like went to state school, <laughs> you know, and I just, I'd like, you know, it was just very hard for me to like show up. And, um, at that time, uh, a writer named Brene Brown was really popular and she had a couple of TED talks about like shame and vulnerability and guilt that I like watched. And then like a bunch of my friends and I watched together. And I think we were all like, yeah, like that's the thing, you know, that like, 
like that somehow doing well in med school has gotten like wrapped up in my self-worth in a way that like doesn't make sense and is like and that like that like connected this you know she talks about like uh shame being sort of like the sense that you are bad versus guilt being like you've done something bad and both of which are a little misplaced when you're thinking about not honoring an exam but here we are right and like it had me i i just found myself thinking about that a lot about like how wound up i was about performance and also how like inadequate i felt around all of these other people and how it was more or less impossible for me to, to be a good peer a good friend and certainly not a good like budding doctor when i was like walking around with that much just like stuff coming with me into any given room um and i think a lot of a lot of people in medicine like especially once i became once i became a professor it became much much easier for me to see how many of my students across the spectrum from undergrad to med school and i have some mentees who are younger just like struggling with like really profound like anxiety really profound feelings of like unworthiness and stuff that they had like placed into their academic performance which made it like such so high stakes for them to like not just like pass but like do really really well in these ways that are like well like does it matter to being a physician if you got a 96 on this test versus a 90 like ultimately right like probably not like that's like that's still the same that person almost, still knows medicine right almost certainly not <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know um but it it, it like is really intense and I, I i found myself feeling like you know um to get back to the question about anthrop anthropology sociology and psychology right like i found myself like one of my good friends is a, a clinical psychologist and works a lot with kids and kids, especially with trauma. And I, I, I find myself like talking with her a lot because I think we find like, oh, we need to cross pollinate to understand what's happening here. You know, like I'm over here like, oh, well, you see, this is how that community is, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, oh yeah, well, when I get a person that sounds like that person into my office, this is what we do together. You know, and I, I, um, I think that's how like shame and, and guilt became so important um, to like my thinking about what makes people do the things they do, especially in like high achieving spaces like medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. That's like, it sounds like just layers of guilt. There's like, yeah, I don't know the guilt of like, I am not achieving. And so I feel bad about that. And then there's like, I don't know, like the, that's just like, that's just, I've, I just, it's hard. Cause you know, I'm like, as a fellow being so far removed, I feel like sometimes, um, I forget what that feels like, but it, it's it's almost preparing you or preparing them for life after medical school, where I think you get fed this idea that your self-worth is your productivity or, you, you know, like as a, you know, budding GI doctor, like how many EGDs, colonoscopies can you do in a day? And if you can do like eight in the morning, eight in the afternoon, you can like get the most RVUs and then you are maximally efficient and you are the best human being that you could be. Like, yeah. Yeah. You get fed that. I, I, I mean, do you, are you seeing that link or are you, are you seeing that happen or people trying to push that on you as like a, as an intern at UPenn or like, you know, or period? <laughs> No, not yet. I mean, that would be laughable. I think I saw like two <laughs> patients in a half day session of clinic today and was like, <laughs> Lord have mercy.
<laughs> no, but I mean, it's so, it's, um, God, it does feel like it gets worse with every passing year, that thing though. Like, to be honest, you know, I mean, like, so my mom is a community hospitalist and just like watching the ways that like corporatization has like slowly eaten away at her existence, I think, and like increasing pressure to see more patients, decreasing benefit, decreasing pay for same or more work. Like, you know, it's such a, it's such a huge issue. Um, one of my like side things that I'm like really into that I'm like a weird nerd about is, is, is productivity, which is bizarre. And I think one of the reasons for that actually is because I was like, I, I found myself like towards the end of grad school being like, I want to be productive insofar as I have goals for my life. Oops. I have goals for my life and I want to like actually achieve them. But like, I want to avoid, I, I just listened to a podcast on toxic productivity the other day. Like, I don't want that thing where like, I'm like running around like a hamster so much that I can't enjoy, you know, myself. Like, and I, I found it really hard when I see attendings where I'm just like, I really feel like you're burning the candle at both ends. And I don't think I want that for myself. And then having to have that conversation with yourself, that's like, well, am I going to choose to do this thing, which may not day to day look the way I want to I want it to look, but which satisfies the part of me that's ambitious, the part of me that thinks that I should want to have this kind of position, um, you know, and and I think that all gets into this, like, like what we put on ourselves and what we put on our career is like something that's going to like make us feel good and worthy. And then like what our hospitals say is like, yes, good for you. You ran yourself ragged for six weeks in a row. Congratulations. Here's a bonus that might not quite feel like it was worth it you know? <laughs> it'll fill you a halfway full yeah. um well so i guess um i'm gonna jump ship here a little bit um i think there was a bit in one of your pieces that mentioned the importance of uh, i guess physicians understanding um i guess having a better understanding of like class consciousness or like aligning themselves appropriately uh, with like poor working class people why is why is that important for physicians yeah yeah i think that's really important um and i think actually COVID has done a lot to make physicians feel like they're workers right like i think as physicians i think we have been paid in money sure but we've also been paid in like prestige and esteem and regard which i think makes many people feel like when you're a doctor, it's not like you're a wage worker or something, right? Like you're a doctor, you know? And I think it means that like people don't necessarily align themselves with the interests of all the other workers in the hospital. Like, I don't think there are many doctors who think of themselves as the same kind of staff as like the people who work in environmental services or who work in the cafeteria or even clinical staff that are like non-physician staff. Um, and I think, I think that's a mistake because I think the last 20 years of like healthcare finance and like healthcare workplaces have shown that like these massive corporations will do anything to meet their bottom line. And like our, our labor market is just like much more hostile and difficult than it used to be. And we've been inculcated into this ideology that like, we're not like workers. Um, having bargaining power would be bad for us you know or like you know the sense of like like 
we should keep it like this because now there's no like ceiling on how much money you could make and all these there's all these like ideologies going around that are like why we're different from all these other workers but it's like if every single hospital is has its emergency physician staff for example hired through like one of like just a few corporations that depress wages and like open residency programs and like completely change the labor market like we're workers, right? If your hospital can say, we're not gonna protect you, but you still have to go to work and you need to reuse your PPE or maybe not have any PPE at all, like you're a worker, like you're beholden to somebody who employs you. Like there are very few people who can go into private practice and be their own boss anymore. And I think um, being responsive to these changes that are affecting not just physicians, but like all people who need to make a living to eat um, like we're seeing the same things happen in our, our labor force that are happening across all these other areas of work where it's getting harder and harder to make a living and people are working harder and harder for more, for less money, honestly. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to see like with COVID even like, um, that are, I don't know, I guess there's been this crazy, um, uh, change, especially in like the, um, like the restaurant scene or like, um, you know even in like retail market, like just there's been this giant turnover of like workers who have left the market or just left the working world and haven't gone back for whatever reason. Um, and now companies are being forced to <laughs> being forced, you know, increase wages, give bonuses to people who want to, you know, be retail workers. And I think there, there's been this, I don't know, long push to like, you know, increase the minimum wage, but it seems like now it's changing because of other, uh, you know, you know, pressures, I guess, on the, on the market. Um, you think that, I guess you're, you should, that's important for doctors to understand, like that, that helps us, I guess, with our patients. Yeah, I think it does. And I think it's also like, you know, like, Look, I have particular like political like political orientations and like my own my own personal perception of like what it would take to produce equality in American society, which is like extensive and which I like do not necessarily need to air here. But it's <laughs> suffice to say that like I think there are many changes that need to happen. And I think that many of the changes that need to happen will only happen when people who currently don't feel vulnerable, don't feel like they're close to poverty, like don't feel like precarious start to recognize that they're more precarious than they feel like they are and feel invested in producing a society that has a, a much deeper, wider, more providing social safety net. Um, and it's hard to feel invested in that if you have an ideology that's like, oh, well, I'm not in the subset of people that will ever like, you know, be destitute. And it's like, you think that now, but there's no, there's nothing to say that the things couldn't change, right? Yeah, I think it's hard to even um, explain to people who have always had their own safety net to even understand what it means to be, as you put it, pr precarious. You know, like because even just saying the word, like I don't think if you've never, <laughs> if you've never had to think about where your next meal is going to come from or if you never had to really make hard decisions between like food versus medicine or like medicine versus like daycare like i think it's really hard for people to actually conceptualize what that 
feels like. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And I think, um, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I know that, that, you know, all the data indicates that the vast majority of medical students are coming from like the richest households in America for obvious reasons, I think. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's also that like most physicians have not wanted you know, and maybe there are histories of like deprivation in their life, in their background, but they might be distant. It might be like a parent who grew up in poverty, but was okay, or like multiple generations, but like many people in medicine come from like several generations of wealth. And so I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and I, and I think that's a challenge and it's a challenge for the way we relate to our patients. And I think it's actually really important too, as we think about how we diversify the like the physician workforce, right? Because I think right now we we spend a lot of of our energy looking at like kind of like um, like identity representation, and like I think that's important. Like <laughs> just to be clear, like I think it's really important that we recruit people of color. Um, for example, I re we recruit queer people, we recruit trans people, we recruit people who have a wide, you know, people with disabilities, like people who have a wide range of the like identities that are like that our patients will hold because I think it's important. But I also think that it's important for us to also recruit more diversely across the class spectrum because like so much of what impacts our patients is like this like lived experience of poverty that many of us don't have access to. And so like, it has to be two pronged, right? Like we have to figure out an educational strategy for like trying to help people grasp what it actually feels like to live in like intractable poverty or even like to be middle-class, but to know that like all that needs to happen is you make a mistake or you spend a little too much on your credit card or you lose your job and that like you won't ever be able to get back up. Like I think those are sort of, that's probably even more common among our patients, right? Um, and so like if we don't, you know, we should change recruitment so that we have more people like that. But of course that's a massive structural issue that would require us to like invest in education, et cetera. And in the meantime, I think we have to figure out as educators, like how do we train people who are able to like empathize with that and understand it, even if they will never feel it and figure out how to like deliver care that's mindful of those differences. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I kind of feel like I want to jump to uh, not like lightning round, but like there are a couple of Twitter questions slash things that we've mentioned that I wanted to circle back to. Okay. So we're just going to do that. So this, this, this is a question that comes from Mary at MH Poison. Uh, she says, I'd be curious to hear thoughts about how physicians and other healthcare workers can effectively communicate benefits of public health measures to politicians broadly and more specifically around current issues like mask mandates. Sort of a, it's a big, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah. That's a huge question. That's a big question. She does. She always um, brings the heat. This is, this is kind of what she does. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay. I think we have a couple problems that are impacting. We have a couple problems that are really impacting our ability to effectively communicate to politicians. Like the first of it is that many of us are not in the constituent demographic that they're listening to, right? And I think that really matters. I think like the changes in how political identity is constructed now 
um, the ways that like uh, the like monetization of like news and reporting and media has like become so dependent upon clicks and virality um the the ways that like even just like how voting like how how politicians are incentivized to appeal to voters make it very very hard to communicate unpopular ideas to in a particular constituency that a politician's concerned about to them in a way that's really effective um so to break that down a little bit there so for a while i worked as a research consultant for a company called Topos. And one of the things we did as that company is we like walked around and we would just like talk to ordinary Americans about issues that like DC and New York and LA based nonprofits wanted to understand what the people thought about, right? So they're all people who were like coastal elites, right? And they were like, we work on this issue. We don't really know what like regular people think about it anymore. Like we need to find out. And so they would send me to places like Arkansas or rural Michigan and have me like literally walk around on the street and like talk to strangers about this stuff, right? About all kinds of things, like hot button political issues, like you you name it, like I probably have had a conversation with a complete stranger about it. And what I thought is really interesting is that on both sides, both on the left and on the right, I would ask a person what they think about something and they would often be like, boom, this is what I think about it. And then like with my like gentle questioning, not even like interrogation, but like, oh yeah, cool. Like, tell me why you think that. Like, I'm really curious about it, whatever. Very, very often I would find that there was like not anything behind that belief. It's like what they feel that they should feel, what the people around them feel, what the discourse in their particular pocket is saying, but not like something that they've spent a lot of time thinking about, right? I think that's an opportunity <laughs> and also a challenge. And I think it's also true when you like scale it up to politicians, right? Because they're responding to a whole group of people that have a politicized identity and they themselves are sort of like often have that themselves. I think that we can try to communicate with as much like empathy, with as little arrogance, with as much clarity and without any false certainty when we have these communications. I think a lot of the communication that I've seen over the course of the last year plus has been really like dogmatic, sometimes in the absence of evidence, even from people who I agree with, right? Where I'm like, we actually don't know the answer to that question yet, you know? Like, and it's hard because when people are being perceived, when you perceive that your opponent's being reactionary, it's very easy to like get into that posture too, instead of being like, okay, what if we do have to make the best possible decisions in the face of uncertain evidence? And we think the more prudent decision is this, but the jury's out, right? And they think the, whatever, they think whatever they think. Um, and we don't necessarily think that's prudent, but we can't like pretend that we know things that we don't know in order to like make these arguments, right? right. That's like one thing. Um, this kind of ties and back the other, to like vulnerability, vulnerability and that. Yeah. Like, yeah, just being honest about like, there are gaps in our knowledge, but you know, we, yeah, still we still are choosing X thing in part from belief, but also, you know, from what we, from the knowledge that we do have, you know? Right. Like you can't say, like, for example, when a patient says to me, like, I'm concerned about the long-term effects of this vaccination. It is a lie to tell them that there are no adverse long-term effects of the vaccination. How would we know that? Like, we don't know that at all. It is more honest to say in the face of uncertain evidence, we are using a strategy that we've used to eradicate infectious disease before, which is vaccination. 
All the available evidence we have says that to this date, they're safe and effective and they're safer than the disease itself. It's true that we don't know what might happen in the future, but we have every reason to believe that it won't be as severe as the long-term outcomes of, of COVID. That's very different than saying, this is totally gonna be safe forever. Because honestly, like, we have no idea if five years down the line, we're gonna discover something and then it's gonna really decrease public trust, though we all went around claiming that we knew something that we didn't know. Um, you know, I think honesty is really important and honesty might mean not being able to make the kind of argument that like goes viral in a clip or a meme and that's really like satisfying to people, but at least is like more straightforward, more honest, more true. Does that mean it's necessarily gonna get them to change their behavior? I'm not sure. I think there's a lot of reasons why people feel the way that they do about masking. I think there's a lot of reasons why we're so polarized. I do not think that under these conditions, we're going to resolve those issues overnight. I just, yeah, I don't time. know. I've talked to too many people with entrenched beliefs about this. You know? Yeah. So, okay, this is a follow-up question, which I think works pretty well. It comes from fact-oriented at Blake the Cheese. Um, we know that a lot of the anti-public health behaviors we're seeing in this pandemic, protests against restrictions, rise of misinformation, et cetera, happened with previous pandemics as well. Do we know why this seems to invariably happen and does it serve a purpose? Yeah, that's a good question. I will say, I don't know the answer to, does it serve a purpose? Right, that's a, that's a loaded only, question at the end, Blake the I cheese. would only be, <laughs> yeah, I would only be speculating. I think what I would say about that is that I think people have always responded in lots of different ways to existential threats to their safety, right? So just like a take a more like, kind of like quotidian approach, like as clinicians, like we all have that, you probably had that primary care patient or those patients now where like, there's a wide response, right? There's people who like, okay, like let's say they think there's something wrong with them. There's the people who are like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna schedule my screening for X. I'm gonna go see the doctor. I'm gonna read everything that I know about that. I'm gonna try to make a decision. It's gonna be like this whole thing I go through, right? Um, and then there are people who like, wig out who are like really really anxious who are stressed out or whatever but who are like paralyzed in an act there's other people who like completely avoid the truth they like don't handle it until they have like a festering problem or they like drop in the you know like there's there's all these different responses to handling like stress and existential threats to your survival that are like people display in the everyday and like most of us know different people in our lives who deal with stress in different ways and i think that what we're seeing with the pandemic is just that thing like when you think about the basics of it what we're asking people to do is to respond to this novel uncertain invisible threat that could strike at any time and keeps them from doing everything that makes life worth living keeping in mind that people weren't having a ton of fun before that we were like people were like already like heavily in debt from medical expenses like working more hours for less money like living like it's a it's a hard time to be alive and people respond to stress in all kinds of ways that are like and people also really love belonging right and like so you know like 
being part of something, having a group that you agree with, et cetera, like I think that's also part of what has like led people to get really invested in being part of communities that are either pro-vaccination, anti-vaccination, pro-masking, anti-masking, QAnon, et cetera, like all of these like proliferating things. Like, I mean, our whole society is just like full of all these ways people are trying to belong. Like even like MLMs are ways that are, people are trying to belong to something, right? So I don't know, it didn't, it didn't surprise me. I mean, I think there's some people who are like, we're just gonna make a smarter society and in the future, we're gonna get it right. And I'm like, are we like, are we are we saying that we're gonna find some way to to homogenize the human response to threats and stress? You know, like we can't do that. Like people are always gonna now. Could we have been a more socially and politically and economically resilient nation going into this? Yeah, I mean, I think lots of other nations have demonstrated that it's possible to do this better. But like right. we are who we are in this fine country of ours, and like this is how we've decided to play it. You know. What so you said? Sorry, just for my own edification, MLM. I don't know what that is actually. What is multi-level marketing? Do you not? You have any person who got into like cut cone knives or like uh, Herbalife or like all of these, or they sell leggings? The basic gist of it is essentially <laughs> like a company where like they give you a bunch of product and then you have to like try and sell it. Oh, like yeah, like almost, wow. We, yes, they're no, almost never like heard of your. It? They're almost like your. I don't know. It sounds like the relationship that some corner boy would have with a drug dealer, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like that, but like way more corporate and like kind of interesting. There's a really interesting podcast about um, MLMs called The Dream, actually, which like sort of talks about it. But it's basically like they come around and they're like, you're going to be an entrepreneur. You're going to know so much. You're going to make so much money. You're going to be able to do this. Like everybody else who sells this stuff makes so much money. And they have MLMs for like everything now. I didn't know um, that that's what those... I see commercials about that every time I try to start a YouTube video. It's like yeah. you can sell like sell stamps on like Amazon or you can, you know, sell these products and you're going to make a ton of yeah, actually I see this stuff all the time and I I just whenever I can hit next to skip through it, I just I just hit that next button. Yeah. I mean, I only, I, it's funny, I don't get the ads, but I know about it because some of the people I know from growing up um, and kind of like the smaller communities I lived in and got invested in them because I think they sell you the dream of being a CEO and being your own boss, Did making tons of money. Them end up making. No. 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 I see. No, no, no. I guess. There's a really, oh God, what's the one? There's one that sells leggings that's like pretty popular. Anyway, you get the idea. Right. But that's all just to say, like, it, it's the American dream. It's like the fantasy. It's prosperity. It's, I don't know. I feel like I, I didn't satisfy, uh, satisfy the answering, you know, oh, I why like people your, like this. Oh, but, say, I, I like the answer. That was, that was a lot better than I was going to be able to do. So yeah, he, people ask tough questions on here. So, okay. The one, I wanted to circle back to one, this whole idea of, um, we were talking about, um, how I guess, racism or like oppressive structures can be imbued in uh seemingly neutral entities um so i think we you had given an example talking about like um it made me think about um ai and its ability to like imbue like its its own racial prejudices um I don't know. I mean, because like AI, it just feels like this thing that's coming. 
Um, I feel like it's really important to understand how it's going to function, whether it's in the hospital or like anywhere that it's going to be prominent. Um, I don't know. Can you talk about that? Like just a little bit more? Yeah, sure. It's funny. We, we should have had my, um, my sister on here because she's a, she's a PhD at MIT who like, I think thinks about these things probably with greater depth than I do, but I, yeah, just, I mean, I think you may have just said who the next guest on the silent doc is going to be, yeah, but that's fine. Maybe. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I think that when you say something like AI, people think that it's like, I don't know, like growing a brain from scratch or something like that. And they don't understand that like AI refers to a number of techniques for like, essentially like usually for like training computers in like pattern recognition using like existing data sets. And we make choices about those data sets and those data sets were generated in this society that we have, which is rife with bias, some of which we understand, some of which we'll only come to understand in the future, right? And so like we we have some of that starting in terms of like clinical decision tools that started getting built into our EMR, at least at my institution, um, where, you know, like maybe it'll try and help like identify patients who might benefit from like, a mental health intervention or like might, you know, be more likely to come back to the ER or might have like worse outcomes or something like, you know, they have all of these tools and they often will like use, like one of the tools uses like language used in the chart, right? Which is really interesting, right? So like, so for example, our mental health tool, which, so caveat, less people from my institution hear me on here. I l really enjoy this mental health intervention that we have, which basically embeds a team on our general medicine floors that does mental health, like both like social work and counseling and psychiatry and does like proactive, like assessments of our patients who are high risk to like integrate behavioral health into their medical care, which I think is wonderful. But like as an example of like one of these tools, like we have a, you know, a clinical decision tool that like, we'll look at words in the chart and like look for like particular things like a lot of them are like drugs, like, you know, medications the patient might be on, but like also like particular diagnoses or like words that might come up that like, you know, might be associated with like a need for mental health intervention. But like you could imagine, like we know, like with, we know that like, for example, mental health diagnoses are not equally distributed across the population what diagnosis you get for the same behavioral pattern is like very loaded by race and class, whether you're like a kid that has ADD or whether your labor is having say oppositional defiant disorder, whether you have schizophrenia or just depression, right? All of those things, right? So you can imagine that like uh, a tool trained on a data set generated by biased physicians would also necessarily be biased. Now, in some cases it might not necessarily like matter insofar as like if the tool accurately predicts, like accurately like draws attention to the need for intervention in a particular case. But you can imagine as these tools become more ubiquitous that, and that we'd have to be very, very careful to figure out like how we're going to train them and evaluate their success in order not to produce bias, right? Um, and I don't know the answers to that. That's not my area. Yeah, right, right. There's a part of me that's like, I think that might be impossible because I don't know that you're going to find any data that doesn't have any bias in it. That seems weird. And then like the idea that we would even know exactly what the bias is entirely, which I think is also a different question. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's really, it's, it's both really promising. I'm a huge tech nerd, but it's also a bit daunting, concerning. Yeah, yeah. concerning yeah, yeah, yeah. in many ways. Yeah, I was just thinking, how do you prove that some AI program is racist? Yeah, or like, I mean, really, what that proves is that we're racist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. To, <laughs> like, so I'm like, you would probably go to the person who created it, or like, and yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. Um, okay, so that's. I feel like that's mostly what I had here. I feel like as we as we wrap up here, um, I think my. I feel like I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to end this with. Is there anything? Is there anything we didn't touch on actually that uh, that you would like to mention, or do you have any closing thoughts for us as we wrap up? Yeah. Hmm. Um, no, I mean, I, I do think I, I may have rambled about all the things I wanted to ramble about, but I, I think <laughs> maybe the closing point is is I I often talk to people who feel really, really daunted by the just like the massive amount of work there is to do in order to make our world writ large more just, but even just like the spaces that they work in. Um, and people say this and it probably sounds trite, but I think it's really true. I think like starting small and like committing to yourself to like small actions um, is a really great place to like start the habit of building your voice because I think what happens to a lot of us as trainees is that we sort of get told that like the time that we will have our power will we'll, like really make a difference is when we're attendings but like by then we won't have been in the habit of speaking up right we'll, all, we'll already have developed a professional identity that doesn't necessarily do that work and integrating it like from scratch then as opposed to like this steady building over time will be much more daunting and it might never come you know so just like you don't have to save the world, but just feeling like how do I, how do I live and work in a way that feels good and ethical to me now within the scope of my abilities and my power, um, I think is like sort of a good check for whether or not you're you're doing what you need to be doing. Okay, that was awesome. I was gonna try to wrap up the session, but I, I can't really end on a higher and more aspirational note than that. So I feel like we should just end there. I just want to say. Thank you, Michelle, for coming on the show. It's been super enlightening. Um, and I hope our listeners and viewers found it uh, awesome as well. Sweet. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. And hopefully there's like something in there that people can take away from that. <laughs> exactly. I think there's a lot in there. Um, okay. This is me. And I'm signing off. See you guys.